0: Friends, let us pray and invite God into this space. God of all, we thank you for the promise of your presence in the pages of Scripture. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who illuminates that Scripture for us. We ask that you would open up all of our hearts and our minds and our ears, that we would hear your word in this place that we would know what it is that you would have us take out with us, that you would have us change how you ask us to grow, that we might glorify you, that we might continue our worship out of this space and into the community around us. We lift up all of these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Our epistle reading this morning comes from the letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 12 through 25. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." And our reading this morning from the book of Acts comes from Acts 21, verses 27 through 36. We come about at another one of those moments in which Paul is causing quite a ruckus in the city center. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. This is the word of God for the people of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. One of these days I'm going to stop turning in sermon titles with bulletins because more often than not I start off the week thinking the sermon is going to go in one way and I title it in that direction and it ends up going somewhere else entirely. This is one of those weeks, if you're paying attention to the sermon title in the bulletin, and what I'm actually about to say, it's not going to connect very much at all. I thought that we would be dwelling in the idea that Jesus suffered, and we will suffer. Paul suffered. And there is hope even in the suffering. So when I turned in the bulletin, It was with the title, Provided We Suffer With Him. And that's all true and important and relevant, and it's just totally not where God went with things this week at all. So we're going to call this one, I Just Assumed. You are welcome to cross it off and write it in on your bulletin if you would like, but you don't have to. And the irony is not lost on me that I assumed that God would go one way with the scripture this week. And the way that God wound up going with it was about how we are often too quick to make assumptions. Now, our friend the Apostle Paul, who we've been following for a few weeks now, is constantly misunderstood. Everywhere he goes, people are frequently making assumptions about him, both small and large. He doesn't seem to fit into any preconceived models of who he should be. And in the scene that I read today, people have assumed that because Paul hangs out with Gentiles, those who were not born Jewish, those who are Greek, that he has brought them with him into the temple. This is a pretty big accusation to lift up against him, but they lift it up because they don't like him, and so they assume the worst about him. This was not a small offense, bringing a non-Jewish person into the temple. The temple was very structured into regards of who was allowed to go where. The Gentiles had to hang around at the very edges, right outside. Jewish women could go in just a little bit farther than non-Jews, and Jewish men could go in even further to where they could actually see the religious rites and ceremonies happening. Priests could go into the further altar areas, and finally, only one chosen priest could go into the holiest place in the whole temple, and even then, only once a year. If you have a printout of the sermon, you will see that I have included a diagram of the temple for you. But to put it into our context, that would be like saying, Anyone who has not been baptized cannot come into the sanctuary here, they must stay out in the narthex out in the fellowship area and glean what they can from the service from there and women and children would need to stay in the back few pews of the sanctuary which would be blocked off with a partial wall and then men most of you wouldn't be able to go any further than the first few pews here unless you wore an elder and this is where our metaphor breaks down a little bit because they certainly didn't have female priests at the time of the temple, and we do have female elders, ruling elders and teaching elders now, but it would be like saying only elders can come anywhere near the communion table because they help to serve communion, and then only I would get to stand behind the pulpit. And what Paul was accused of doing was taking one of the folks from the narthex, one of the ones who weren't allowed in, into one of the holier places. Now, although he is now a Christian icon and one of the authors of much of the New Testament that we read as scripture, Paul was one of the most Jewish of the Jews. And even after his conversion to Christianity, he was still a Jew who deeply respected Jewish customs and rituals. He did not see them as being in conflict with his Christian beliefs. He saw them as being A fulfillment of one another. In fact, when it says near the end of the seven days, that seven days was a purification ritual that he had gone to the temple to do. He wouldn't have done that if he didn't respect the Jewish customs. It's silly to think that he would have such disrespect for the temple even after his conversion. Paul doesn't get bent out of shape though about this false accusation that is made against him, because he knows that his identity is not in what other people assume about him. Paul's identity was not at all what the people around him assumed it was, and he knew it, and he stood confidently in that identity. They thought he was just some rabble-rousing lowlife from a lower class who had the nerve to bring Gentiles into the temple. But Paul was a full Roman citizen by birth. He was a respectful Jewish man. Now, he was a rabble rouser, but that was the only thing that these folks got right about him. In spite of how much it can hurt when people get us wrong, scripture is clear that we shouldn't waste our time worrying about what other people think or assume about us. Instead, Scripture spends its time warning us to stop making off-the-cuff assumptions about other people. We are, after all, supposed to model the way that we want to be treated when we're interacting with others. Jesus encouraged the disciples to let little kids run up to him, rather than assuming that he wasn't there for the children or that they weren't worth his time. He helped tax collectors, adulterers, the poor, lepers. He hung out with all the people that others wanted nothing to do with because they were assumed to be beyond the point of no return or not worth the trouble for some reason or another. Now, I did some sermon illustration crowdsourcing this week on Facebook. Crowdsourcing is where you ask a whole bunch of people, usually on social media, or help with something. This seemed to be the sort of week in which hearing other people's stories would be a helpful and a useful exploration of the topic. And so I asked, what have you when have you made an assumption about someone that turned out to be wrong? And what wrong assumptions have others made about you? The answers were all over the spectrum in a whole variety of ways. One friend, who is a nurse, and who recently moved from Pittsburgh down south, spoke of an experience right after she moved. My now dear friend, Carolee, I thought when we first met that she was going to be just nasty and unfriendly. It turns out she's just intimidated in new situations and has been treated badly at other hospitals. She's lovely and kind and wonderful. One of my favorite stories was this one. Once in my college days, when I had an afro in addition to my beard, I preached at a friend's church. Afterwards, a dear old lady came up to me and said, I didn't think I'd like you when I saw you. Now, the best part of this is the person who shared it is now one of the most well-respected professors at Pittsburgh Seminary who is in constant demand for preaching and speaking engagements and is one of the most likable people you will ever, ever meet. A colleague in ministry said, Many years ago, I corresponded with another man who was also doing urban youth ministry. We wrote letters, spoke on the phone, and so on for several years— but we never met. At a youth workers convention in 1988, I saw him with his name tag on, went over and stuck my hand out. He looked at my face, looked at my name tag and said, you're Dave Carver? Dude, I always thought you were black. If you know him, it's even funnier. My sister said that people assume that since she lives in Orlando, she must go to Disney all the time. And then on a more serious note shared that over 12 years of teaching, I've learned not to trust my first impressions. I've never been very good at being right about someone based on a first impression anyway. But you can never tell on the first day of school which kids will change your life. A friend from seminary said, When people find out I'm going to be a pastor and I studied at seminary, they assume that I'm, one, going to be a priest, and, two, hate a bunch of people. A friend and neighbor shared, When people knew I was an orphan, they assumed I was a bad person who wouldn't amount to anything. I now run my own huge business and I think I turned out all right. And she did turn out all right, for the record. She's not the only one who thinks she did. She turned out to be a pretty great mom. One of my dearest friends, who happens to be multiracial, said, When I tell people that my dad grew up in the hood, a child of seven born to a poor single mother, and that my mom grew up in a suburb to an aspiring middle-class family, daughter of a veteran who sent her and all of her siblings to college, and then show them this picture, instant cognitive dissonance. And the picture that he attached to the comment shows his white father and his black mother. And finally, a high school classmate, who I always knew had a heart of gold, said the assumption that because I was a teen drug addict that I couldn't grow into a successful adult, that I was worthless and would stay that way. They still think of me that way there, she means where we went to high school without realizing that I moved away 20 years ago, have not touched a drug since, hit the ground running, have a wonderful career and amazing children that I raise on my own. Not bad for a former coke addict. It is so easy to be so wrong about people. In the hope that we find in Jesus, for ourselves and for others, We are saved into eternity, and we are saved in this world, too. We have the hope of adoption into God's own family. Our identity is in nothing other than belonging to Christ. And that changes how much we care about other people assuming things about us, and it frees us up from making false assumptions about others. It's not our place to decide who's in And who's out? We don't know what God is doing or plans to do in and through the people around us just by looking at them once or twice. Instead of making assumptions about people's motives and backgrounds and futures and abilities, we should start with assuming that the Bible is true when it tells us this about us and the people around us. That everyone, everyone is loved by God. 1 John 2 2 says, He, Jesus, is the propitiation of, for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. 2 Peter 3 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach a p- repentance. Romans 8 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus didn't come into the world for just the well-behaved, or the people who happened to be born in the right time or place, or the ones who screwed up less than the rest. God does not wish unrepentance on anyone. All are loved. Not all live into that love, but that makes them no less loved. When your child says they hate you and you're the worst parent in the world because you made them turn off the TV, that doesn't make them any less loved. They're just bucking against that love. We all buck against God's love from time to time. Nobody is beyond hope. Remember that the Paul we are talking about was the Saul of early acts torturing Christians sending them to prison turning them in to authorities who he knew would brutalize them Acts 10:34 and 35 says so Peter opened his mouth and said truly i understand that god shows no partiality but in every nation Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. Showing compassion to any person is the same as showing it to Jesus himself. Showing judgment, or almost worse than judgment, indifference to another person is the same as showing indifference to Jesus himself. Matthew 25, 37-40 says... Who are the least of these in our world? And how much time have you spent with them lately? Because I guarantee you that when you spend time with them, you'll realize what Jesus is talking about here. He's not just speaking in vague metaphor. When you hang out at jails or prisons to show compassion to hurting prisoners, you are going to see Jesus there. When you sit down in a nursing home to read scripture to an elderly person who has been all but forgotten, you're going to run into Jesus there. When you play basketball with those noisy kids down the street who don't seem to have any adult supervision, you're going to be playing basketball with Jesus. That other person, no matter how low they appear to have fallen, is no less than you are. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I've been watching a show recently called American Ninja Warrior. In case you were ever wondering about my television habits, there's a strange window into it. And I have a vague fantasy that one day I'll be on that show. Although I have a feeling that it's unlikely to happen unless they do a special American Ninja Warrior busy mom who is in pretty good shape but still really likes donuts special. On this show, athletes run through ridiculous obstacles that require huge strength and balance and agility and foresight and thinking to get from one side to the other. And when they mess up, they fall into a pool of water below. There's a series of five or six obstacles that they run through during the course. And each obstacle, you either finish or you don't. And if you don't, you get wet. And it doesn't matter if you fall in the first step from the platform onto the obstacle, or if you fall on the last step at the end of the obstacle onto the next platform, if you fall in that pool, you fall in that pool, you are out. There is no partial credit for getting partway across that obstacle. It doesn't matter if you fall in from head to toe, or if you catch the edge and your toe hits the water. When you touch the water, you're out. There is no bonus for getting closer to the other side than the other guy. They're all just as wet as anyone else who missed. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Friends, we are all quick to make assumptions about others and to get bent out of shape when others make false assumptions about us. But what we need to focus on is our real identity, our identity in Jesus Christ. We have become heirs to God's kingdom, adopted sons and daughters of the Almighty. That is the only identity that matters for ourselves and for the people around us. This identity calls us to hope for all of creation. And friends, people, our fellow humans are part of creation. It calls us to love and to compassion for one another. You never know who is a citizen of the kingdom and who isn't. You never know what plans God has for the people around you. The founding father of Presbyterianism, John Calvin, calls it the visible church and the invisible church. We can see who's at the visible church, but we don't know who is in the invisible church. You never know what plans God has for the people around you. You might just be tossing a Roman citizen in jail under false accusations. Amen.